Let me invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. There's an old saying that has become popular again in recent years. It's this saying, not all who wonder are lost. Unfortunately, the majority of the time you see that saying, that phrase is on people's Instagram travel photos, but it actually has a kind of a historic, rich meaning to it. And I'm going to reveal my nerdiness here. But this phrase, not all who wonder are lost, actually comes from the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which I've told you you should read. Some of you didn't listen to me. No, I'm kidding. Um, but, you know, so it was written by J.R.R. Tolkien, who was a Christian. He actually led C.S. Lewis to faith in Christ. Um, I think if you do that, you're probably going to have a pretty big mansion in heaven. Um, but a really great guy. And, and this phrase comes from a riddle that was written about one of the main characters in the trilogy, a character named Aragorn. And Aragorn is introduced in the story as a wanderer. He's kind of this mysterious guy who just travels around, who, who seems to have no purpose in life. No one really knows much about him. But as the story develops, he actually ends up being one of the main characters. There's this prophecy about him, which is where we get that phrase. And this prophecy points to the fact that Aragorn is the rightful heir to a throne. And he becomes a king, and it's this really incredible story. So <clears throat> why am I telling you all this? Besides the fact that, again, you should go read Lord of the Rings. But actually, this, this makes an important point. Because the whole idea behind that quote, not all who wonder are lost, is that we should not just look on appearances. As they say, we shouldn't judge a book by its cover. Things are not always as they appear on the outside. And today, as we continue walking through the book of 1 Peter, we're going to see the Apostle Peter make a similar idea in his letter. Remember, this letter was written to a group of Christians that on the outside, they seemed to be out of place. He called them exiles, not physically, but spiritually. They were strangers and wanderers living in a world that was not their home. And as we saw, Peter told these believers that it was because of their faith in Jesus that they were exiles. Their exile was not an accident, but they were saved for a purpose. They had a new citizenship in heaven, and they were called to live out their identity with love for one another and in holiness. We saw that. And in the verses we're going to look at today, Peter writes to these believers that even though you're exiles, even though you're outcasts and strangers, there is more to you than meets the eye. Even though you may feel insignificant at times, you actually have a very important place in God's story. And the same is true for you and me, because not all who wonder are lost. So let's read our passage together this morning. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's word? This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. You can be seated. Again, I I want to remind you who Peter was writing to because this is the key. These were believers who were in the minority in their community. They were being ostracized and mistreated and ridiculed for their faith. They were facing trials of many kinds. We also know that most of the believers in these churches were Gentiles. That meant they were not Israelites. They were not Jews. They didn't come from God's promised Old Testament nation. So they're wondering, hey, how do I fit into this story that started with Israel? I'm not a Jew. What is my place in all of this? And that's what Peter is addressing. He's helping us as Gentile exiles understand who we are and how we fit into this great story. So as we walk through the text this morning, I want to give you three things, three things that Peter says exiles are not, which will tell us who exiles really are. Here's the first. Number one, exiles are not aimless. Why don't you say that with me? Make sure you're staying awake. Exiles are not aimless. This passage is filled with Old Testament references and quotes. Seriously, almost every verse here has an Old Testament connection. And that tells us a couple important things. Number one, it tells us that we need to read the Old Testament. (laughs) You know, it's really tempting as a New Covenant believer to want to only read the New Testament. It tends to be a little easier to understand and apply to our lives. And, you know, so much of the Old Testament is kind of foreign to us. But I want to encourage you, don't neglect reading and studying the Old Testament. The second thing this tells us is that Peter is connecting Old Testament Israel and New Testament church. There's a lot of confusion on how the people of God in the Old Testament relate to the people of of God in the New Testament. Are they two separate things that have no connection? Did the church just replace Israel and Israel doesn't matter anymore? Well, no. Peter shows us that the New Testament church is the fulfillment of Old Testament Israel. And we're going to see this a lot more clearly when we get to Romans in the fall. Uh, God loves Israel. He made a special covenant with him, and he will keep that by bringing many Jewish people to salvation in the future. But God has always had a plan to bring Gentiles into his family, people of all nations. So what he's doing, he's bringing Jew and Gentile together through Jesus and forming them into one people of God. And that's what we would have seen. If we would have visited one of these churches that Peter wrote to, we would have saw a church filled with Jews and Gentiles who had turned to Jesus and were now worshiping together as one church. So Peter's taking the storyline of the Bible. He's bringing it all the way around. He's putting all the pieces of the puzzle together. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 4 is talking about Jesus. 
It says, as you come to him, and then the him is defined. It says, Jesus is a living stone. Now, here in 2021, Olathe, Kansas, we see Jesus called a stone, and we kind of skim over that. That doesn't really have a lot of significance for us, right? To, to, to us, stones are something you skim out in the creek. Anybody do that as kids? Or you maybe you put out in your flower bed, or you even drive on to get to church. But they're not really important to us. But let's put our Old Testament glasses on for a minute, okay? This is a reference to, verse, to Psalm 118, verse 22. It says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus in the Gospels, he took that verse and he said, hey, this is about me. He was the stone that was rejected. And Peter adds on the word living stone because Jesus has been resurrected. But that still doesn't tell us why Jesus is called a stone. Seems kind of trivial. But remember, stones were very important in this time period. They were important specifically for building things. In the first century, most things were constructed out of stone. So calling Jesus a stone meant that he was a part of something that was being built. And what is it that's being built? Well, you'll remember Jesus told us in the Gospels. He said in Matthew 16, 18, he said, I will build my church. So Jesus, the living stone, is the first stone that is laid on which he will build his church. But it's not just him. Look at verse 5. He says, you also are living stones. Okay, so Jesus is a stone and we're stones. What's going on here? Well, this, this, is, this is the truth. When we come to Jesus, we become a part of his church. We become a part of this great building. But what is this building? It's not a literal building. It's a spiritual house where it says we will be priests and we will offer sacrifices. Oh, man, where have we seen that before? The Old Testament. That's right. Three Old Testament references back to back to back. Spiritual house, priest, and sacrifices. Peter's referencing the temple. A temple was called a house. Priests served there. And what did they do? They offered sacrifices. So Peter is telling these Gentile exiles, he's saying, hey, you're being built into a new temple where you, were so, where you will serve as new priests and you will offer new spiritual sacrifices. You as the church are the fulfillment of all these things. Now, maybe they read this, heard this, like we do, and say, you know, it sounds nice. I feel special, I guess. What does this really mean? <laughs> Let's think about this. What was the point of the Old Testament temple and priest and the sacrifices? These things had a very special purpose. The temple was this beautiful, glorious structure, but it wasn't the gold and the jewels that made it so special. It was the fact that the fullness of the glory of God dwelled within it. It was meant to be a tiny little piece of heaven on earth. So it was incredibly sacred. All these rituals and offerings and sacrifices had to be performed before you could even walk in the door. And even then, only the priests could go into the most holy place where God was. And the priests, these were very special set-apart men of God. They had to live in complete holiness. They had to clean themselves and purify themselves. And they had to wear all these special clothes. And then the sacrifices, these were the animals that the priests killed before God to atone for the people. And if everything wasn't done just right, their very lives were on the line. Everything was so special and sacred, it was exclusive, limited to a select, chosen few Jewish people. 
And now, Peter has the audacity to tell these Gentile outcast exiles that all that he just said about the temple and the priests and the sacrifices and how special and important and exclusive all of it is, Peter says, hey, that is now true of you. Exiles, you are not aimless. You are not purposeless. No, you have the greatest purpose and calling of all. Exiles, even though you feel homeless in this world, you may feel like you don't fit in, your body is the very home of God. The presence of God is inside of you, just as the glory of God resided in that innermost sacred room in the old temple. He now lives in you. And exiles, even though you question your role in this world as people look down on you and persecute you, you have the greatest job in the world. You are priest to God himself. And just as the priests of old, you have access to the presence of God. You can go before him any time in prayer and worship. You've been consecrated and purified by the blood of Jesus. And now you're his representatives to the world. And exiles, even though you may feel unworthy of this calling because you still struggle with sin and you still mess up like I do, you can bring sacrifices to God. You can live a life that pleases him. In fact, everything you do can be done to the glory of God. Your life is your worship to him. And you don't need to kill a boat, a goat, not a boat, a goat or a bull to do it. Oh, you've been made righteous by Jesus. Here's the thing. Exiles are not aimless. And everything I just said about these first century Christians, it's true of you and me as well. We are not aimless. And we need that reminder. I know I do. I go through that day-to-day grind of life. Wake up, work, take care of family, go to bed, do it all over again. And there's days I wonder, man, what's all this for? I mean, am I making any difference? Does any of this matter? What am I doing? And this verse tells us, yes, it all matters. Your purpose Your aim in life is not found in how successful you are in your career, how many degrees you have, your salary, or how talented you are, how good your kids turn out, or how many things you can check off your to-do list every day, or how much recognition you can get, or even how much you can serve in the church. You have a purpose because of who you are in Christ. You were made to worship Jesus with your life. So even if you lose your job, your family, your health, your ability, your talent, your money, everything, you are not aimless. You are a temple, a priest. And as you live your life for Jesus, you offer up sacrifices that please him. Exiles are not aimless. It's the first thing we see here. Here's the second. Exiles are not disgraced. In the next few verses, Peter then quotes three verses from the Old Testament to uh, support what he's saying. The first is in verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This comes straight from Isaiah 28, 16, Old Testament again. And it's speaking of Jesus. He is the cornerstone we just sang about. In this time period when they would build structures out of stone, the cornerstone was the most important. It was the strongest stone. It was the most solid stone. So they would lay it first so it could serve as a foundation and guide for the rest of the structure. So you can see why this metaphor is used to describe Jesus. 
He is our cornerstone. We were built on him. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So he says in verse 7, the honor is for you who believe. Think of how significant those words would have been to these believers. In their culture as Christians, they had no honor. They were fools, dummies, nutcases. That's how people viewed them. But Peter says, no, you have honor because you've accepted Jesus. It's the people who've rejected Jesus. They're the ones who will be put to shame. Look at the rest of verse 7. He says, but for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. People don't realize when they reject Jesus, they are rejecting the very foundation of their life, the very foundation of their existence. And to those people, he says, Jesus becomes a stone of stumbling. Think about it, the picture again of a stone. You have this great cornerstone you can either build upon or he says you can trip and fall over it to your judgment. That's what happens to those who don't believe. They stumble because he says they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now here we have a very challenging verse. What does it mean that people were destined to reject Christ? What Peter's pointing out is that this rejection of Jesus by his people is not an accident or a surprise to God. No, God is in control of all things. He is sovereign. The Old Testament actually predicted that there would be people who would reject Jesus. But at the same time, Peter makes clear that those who reject Jesus do so willingly. They choose to reject him. They are responsible for stumbling over the cornerstone. So if you're tracking with me, what happens is we, ha we happen to have two competing ideas. On one hand, people stumble because they choose to disobey the word. They choose to reject Jesus. And on the other hand, it says they were destined to do so. How can we reconcile these competing ideas? Here's how. We don't. <laughs> we don't. This is the timeless debate of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility that has caused many a headache in the Christian life. And logically, from our human perspective, with our little human brains, it doesn't make sense. But from God's perspective, somehow it does. He is sovereign over all things, and yet we are responsible for our own free choices. And there is a mystery here that we have to live with. But don't get lost in that because here's the key point. The key idea is that Jesus, the cornerstone, he is the dividing line of all of humanity. Either you believe in him or you don't and you stumble. Either you believe in him and you're honored or you stumble and you're put to shame. This means exiles are not disgraced. We may be mocked for what we believe. Our biblical views and convictions may become increasingly out of style, and they are. <laughs> we may be even labeled hateful and bigoted, but we are not disgraced. I've done uh, a lot of embarrassing things in my life, speaking of disgrace. <laughs> I am a clumsy person. I remember one time in middle school, in particular, it was yearbook day. 
Remember yearbook day, one of the best days of the year. It was one of the last days of the year. We got to go outside in the bleachers of the football field. Everybody had their yearbooks passing around, signing the bag. and say, hey, you know, have a good summer. Stay cool, Micah. Right? And I was going down the bleachers. I was the cool guy just walking down, you know, the bleachers instead of the stairs. And my friend who was behind me, he stepped on the back of my shoe. So guess what happened to me? Kerplunk. I went flying down the bleachers. It was painful. My, my leg was cut. I was bleeding. But worse than that, I was humiliated. And everyone saw me fall, and they laughed. And, man, in that moment, I thought, <laughs> it's all over. There goes my life. That's it. I'm a disgrace. I will never come back from this ever again. But how much do you think that fall down the bleachers impacts my life today? It doesn't. <laughs> sure, my leg hurt for a few days. It's a good memory to look back on and laugh at yourself. But in the grand scheme of life, it really wasn't a big deal. Listen, in the same way, we may face difficulties and challenges in life, and they may seem like it's the end of the world. We may lose credibility and standing in society because we're Christians. We may become the laughing stock of the world. But in the grand scheme of things, we are not disgraced. Because we have Jesus. We've chosen to build our lives on the cornerstone, and we will not be put to shame. Exiles are not aimless. Exiles are not disgraced. And here's the third and last point. Exiles are not insignificant. In these last two verses, Peter describes the exiles with a series of phrases that come straight from, guess where? The Old Testament. It's language that God used to describe Israel. And these may be uh, some of the most important verses in all of 1 Peter. Look at verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why we sang that earlier, isn't it? Good job. No, it's good. But Israel, think about it. Israel was a chosen race because they were born into it. They were children of Abraham. They were Israelites. But, but now Peter says, hey, it's no longer about your race or your ethnicity. If you are in Christ, you are a part of the chosen race, the people of God. Israel was called a royal priesthood and a holy nation. But now the church is a spiritual nation based not on geographical boundaries, but based on the kingdom of God. Israel was called a people for God's own possession. God chose them out of all the other nations. He said, hey, you are my people, and I'm going to be your God. And now the church is God's own possession. We are the people of God. Why? I mean, why have we been given this great status as God's people? It's for the same reason he gave it to Israel. God's plan for Israel was to make them a great nation so that they might declare his glory to the rest of the world. And that is exactly what he's called us to do today. We have been saved. We have been set apart. We have become the people of God, not for our own sake, but for God's sake. That we might declare the excellencies of him. That we might tell the world that, hey, he's called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. This language of light and dark, it's all throughout the Bible. Uh, we know that before Christ, we were said to walk in darkness we were dead in our trespasses and sins, were rebelling against God, but Jesus died in our place. He stepped into the heart of darkness for us, taking the judgment of our sin on himself so that he could pull us out and bring us into the light. And now it's our job to proclaim that message. 
I'm one of those people that loves to recommend things I like. I love it when friends tell me about something they've tried or something they've bought, whether it's a new restaurant they, they went to or a book they read or a song they heard. Man, when I hear someone say, oh, you have got to check this out, it makes me want to go check it out, right? That is similar to our calling as believers, to tell the world, say, hey, look what Jesus has done for me. Do you know who I used to be? I was walking in darkness, and he picked me up and placed me into his marvelous light, and now I'm a part of this holy nation, this kingdom of priests. Man, you got to check this out. We were saved to lead others to salvation. We were blessed to be a blessing. When you understand what God has done for you, there is no way you can be quiet about it. Peter continues this idea in verse 10. He says, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. i got to confess something to you this morning. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was pulled over by the police. Yes. Right over here on 151st in Merlin, right close to my house. Man, I was ashamed. I hadn't been pulled over in like eight years, and everybody's driving by, pointing, laughing. No. But here's what happened. I was at the red light. I was turning left, and the light, you know, went from green to yellow. Then it was my turn. And it turned red. I said, nobody's going. So I went. And sure enough, there came the lights and the siren behind me. And I pulled over, and he came up to the window. He said, sir, you know, you you ran that red light back there. And I just fessed up. I said, man, I am so sorry. I have sinned against you and God in this great state of Kansas. Please forgive me. I will never do this. I went on the whole thing, and he he said, it's okay. He took my license. He he came back, um, and he let me go. That's why I love Olathe. Great place. He let me go. He didn't give me a ticket. Uh, He said, hey, just be careful. Don't do it again. I said, yes, sir, I will never break the law ever again as long as I live. And then I just sped off. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) But I was so relieved. I was. I was really relieved. I didn't want to pay the money. (laughs) But I was relieved because he had mercy on me. I broke the law. I deserved to pay. I'm a criminal. And he chose not to give me a ticket. Mercy is powerful. It's life-changing, and that's what Peter tells these believers. Again, this is language straight from the Old Testament, from the book of Hosea. Once you were not a people, you were orphans, you were lost, and now you are a people of the king. You are a child of God. Once you had not received mercy, you were sinners who deserve God's judgment. You ran the red light, even though no one was coming, and it really wasn't that big a deal. You ran the red light, and you deserve a ticket, but now you have received mercy. He's saying, do you understand who you are? Do you understand what's been done for you? Exiles are not insignificant. In the world's eyes, we may not appear to be much. We may never be really rich or powerful or cool. Jesus wasn't. He was a traveling Middle Eastern Jewish rabbi, former carpenter with some no-good disciples, who hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes whose own family didn't support him, who was executed as a criminal of the state. But was he insignificant? Nothing could be further from the truth. He was the most significant person to ever walk the earth, and we are his people. 
Even though we're exiles, that doesn't change our status. We're children of the creator of the universe. We are co-heirs with the reigning son of God. We may be wanderers, but we're not lost. So what are we going to do about it? Well, I love how the apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. It will be on the screen for you. He said, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Man, that right there, that is our calling as exiles, to show that the surpassing power of God belongs to God. It's not about me. To manifest the life of Jesus, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and in the marvelous light. We exist to make Jesus known. Because every person we pass, every person that lives on your street, every person that works on your job is on a journey. They're wandering through life, and many of them are lost. And we have the opportunity to show them the way. We have the chance to show them their purpose, that they are being called out of darkness. And they can step into marvelous light if they'll trust in Jesus. And then they will understand that not all who wonder are lost. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.